we have this retreat at um, this very special time that in virtually all uh, cultures has been uh, celebrated in different sorts of ways. The solstice point, the winter solstice point as the time of the return of the sun gods. Or some of you may know that the stones at Stonehenge were set in coordination with the uh, sunset for the winter solstice. So it's this very special and uh, mysterious time as well, a time of greatest darkness and the coming of the light. I want to explore the, the ways in which the winter solstice can really inform our practice and organizing my uh, reflections and uh, pointers around the first, the sense of opening to darkness and even embracing darkness, opening to and embracing darkness and then inviting the light this uh, time in which we can cultivate both and looking at the uh, benefits and the way this is a a wonderful way to uh, uh, have perspective on our practice and to energize our practice. And just as for the natural world here, this is a time of uh, darkness, of quiet, of apparent lack of movement, but we know that things are getting ready in the earth for what comes next, even as it looks dark and still. And there's something quite beautiful from, uh, about being like the earth at this time, being with the darkness, letting whatever is uh, generating inside in the darkness be present. So these qualities of stillness and darkness. Our culture, the mainstream culture on the other hand is rather different. It's actually a time, what, of uh, frenzy (laughs) and speed and moving very quickly. One of my favorite expressions of this is from uh, a fellow spirit rock teacher, dear friend of mine, Diana Winston. She wrote this, this is from a a piece called Speed. Contemporary America, we love fast things, fast cars, fast meals, microwaves, one night stands, instant credit, overnight express, amphetamines, and pizza delivery. (laughs) Interesting combination. Make everything. What did we do before email and texting? 
I don't have time to write letters, read books, visit my friend, play with my little brother, kiss, touch, tie, dance, relate, eat ice cream, make music, cook, pray, smell, meditate, take a walk, my God, make it all stop. I don't have time and it's running out and I'm running fast and furiously and I want it to stop. Ouch, it's painful. Why won't it stop? Can't you make it stop? My God, what's wrong with this country? Have we all gone crazy? Are we insane? We've lost touch. We've lost touch. We've got to stop this endless running about. All I want to do is slow down, just crawl into bed and rock myself to sleep. Not this craziness, not this crazy running about. I am so tired. Please somebody you have got to help me stop. Mm. <laughs> so we've come here and we actually have in a way stopped. And so we've chosen to slow things down, to be willing to stop, to sit, to walk, to have relatively little input come in. The very ancient tradition of, in a way, going into the wilderness to find renewal, leaving our habitual lives to find renewal. The British historian Toynbee said that at from his study of diverse cultures, that at the center of cultural renewal is a cycle of withdrawal and return. And it's part of the basis for renewal of cultures, but also of individuals, as we know. This uh, cycle of um, leaving the habits, leaving the, the busyness and so forth, and finding a time to um, look deeply and let, in a sense, the renewal emerge, the, maybe the new vision, the new understanding. And it's been, uh, for me personally, a very uh, precious time, either around the, around the solstice. I think I've probably have been in retreat context most of the last 30 years, and very, very precious. Uh, probably mostly as a retreatant, like you, sometimes as a teacher. So we come and we really ground ourselves in the uh, nature of our practice. We find uh, a place where we can uh, look carefully. We find a certain degree of solitude. Uh, the Buddhist writer Stephen Batchelor had, a, had a quite a beautiful phrase for practice. He called it being alone with others. There's a sense of community and there's also a sense of sort of supported solitude, which can be very, very uh, beneficial. This is from, uh, the, these, are from, these are the words of the Buddha from over 2,500 years ago. Initial instructions for practice. Go to a forest or an empty hut. And this hall qualifies as an empty hut. <laughs> and find your solitude. Set your body erect and establish mindfulness in front. Being ever mindful, breathe in and breathe out. That's the beginning of the whole set of instructions. So today, as John was suggesting, has been really especially a day of stabilizing, being with the ups and downs of the first day and moving not necessarily in a linear way, towards more stability of mind. Uh, 
towards more uh, composure, towards the mind becoming a little more quiet and still. And on that basis, we can develop this sense of mindfulness, what we might call a sense of presence, being able to be more full with our experience. Probably mindfulness would be better translated as mind, body, heartfulness, because it's really all of, all of those qualities. It's really a fullness of presence with whatever we're experiencing, whether it's uh, positive or negative, pleasant or unpleasant. We cultivate the warmth of kindness Our colleague and um, a mentor to Heather and myself, uh, Sylvia Borstein, has a beautiful way of combining mindfulness with the kind heart. She says, may I meet each moment fully. May I meet each moment as a friend. May I meet each moment fully. May I meet each moment as a friend. And out of that mindfulness and the sort of the base of kindness, of warmth, of compassion, we learn how to see clearly. We learn how to see more clearly our own experience, our own patterns and habits and conditioning, both personal and more cultural. And we come as well to see some of the deeper patterns of human experience. And we open more to, to our depths. I have a nice uh, reading, which I like from one of my favorite books, which is called The Book of Qualities. How many of you know this book? Anyone? Yeah? By a friend of mine who lives around the corner from me, uh, Ruth Gendler. She's a poet and an artist. And she has this book of qualities in which like 50 different qualities, like Pleasure, worry, fear, patience, loneliness, despair, discipline, courage, anxiety, stillness, beauty, criticism, perfection, and so forth are personified. They're all people, and she had to choose the gender of each. I think she wrote this a little bit before there was more consciousness of transgender, but anyway, that's, so they're mostly male, but it's interesting, which qualities are male or female? And she's, uh, so this is wisdom. Is wisdom male or female? (laughs) (laughs) For Ruth, well, Sophia in the Western tradition, it's female, isn't it? Um, And the goddess of wisdom in Buddhist tradition, also female. So I think think that does it. (laughs) So here's wisdom. Wisdom wears an indigo jacket. She takes long walks in the purple hills at twilight, pausing to meditate at an old temple near the crossroads. She was sick as a young child, so she learned to be alone with herself at an early age. Wisdom has a quiet mind. She likes to think about the edges where things spill into each other and become their opposites. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the things she is looking at and sometimes the things she is looking at enters 
through her eyes. Questions of time, depth, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. So we develop that wisdom, and then we really move to the um, capacity to respond. I, I often think of the essence of our practice in a very simple way. We try to be mindful of what's happening, number one, what's going on, what's happening in the present moment. And then on the basis of that mindfulness, we summon our best wisdom and compassion to have uh, an intention to see what's wise, how, what's a wise response. And then we respond. This is the essence of our practice, repeated every moment. And it might be very appropriate for me just to say, okay, that's the end of the talk. Practice that threefold model for the rest of the evening. But since the expectations are there that I'll keep talking, I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to do that. <laughs> but some of you might just take that and say, okay, got what? I got the essence of the talk. I'll just, okay, just, just go. Okay. So this um, sense of um, response is really key. It's really, we want to, what we're doing here is we're training to be responsive moment to moment. We're training here in this training setting. We're doing it in, in a very focused way with, particularly with our own experience. We have chances to bring it out into our work, our meals, our informal time. But we're really training here, and then we'll bring it out into daily life. You know, all, the, all of these qualities into the complexities, which we'll get to, you know, at the end of the retreat, we'll start bringing in those complexities. But the essence of it is something like that threefold model. Mindfulness, summon the wisdom and compassion. What's the skillful response? And I'm reminded of a great, uh, wonderful story uh, of a Zen teacher from um, uh, China. This was from the um, beginning of the 10th century in South China. Uh, a Zen teacher named uh, Yunmen, in, in, in Japanese understood as Umon. Some of you may know through, through Zen practice. And um, someone came to him and basically said, what's the essence of Zen? And I think the actual way the question was asked is, what is the highest, most profound teaching of all the Buddhas and patriarchs? You know, what's the essence of all this? You know, and people might have prepared and, you know, for, you know, it is the conjoint uh, mix of wisdom and emptiness for the scintillating view of all things moving into each other that illuminates the, the mind that is fully balanced by the 18 factors of wisdom. But he didn't say that. He said, what is the essence of, of, of our wisdom? What's the essence of our practice? Appropriate response. Appropriate response. And we can think of that as something that refers to every moment. Every moment, what's the appropriate response? We don't have to worry so much about what's happening but what's my response? Because that's the moment of freedom, right? Appropriate response. Whatever's happened in the past, sometimes good, sometimes not so good, there we train to find that moment of freedom where we can have skillful response. And that's, that's it, that's what we're doing. So I like that we can 
look at the winter solstice and have this uh, uh, help us to understand that, that very simple practice in a way. So I want to look at a few different meanings of embracing the dark or opening to the dark and inviting the light. Uh, first, I want to talk about the darkness as the embracing the darkness as uh, pointing to the quality of darkness as still, that's uh, related to stillness and stopping and really to a certain degree of silence. Secondly, to look at uh, entering the darkness as entering the unknown or mystery, another aspect of darkness. Another, a third aspect of darkness is darkness as difficulty, as challenge. And a fourth aspect of darkness is the quality of darkness as creative and generative, much like the earth now, fertile, we might say. And then point to several ways that the light comes in. One, one way th- through being with the darkness in these, in these different ways, light comes through. And then we can also in our practice deliberately invite the light and let the light be more present. So we, we can see in that sense, uh, darkness and light are both neither good nor bad. We often have connotations in our culture, darkness bad, you know, light good. And we see that in the, you know, the long history of racism. We see that in all sorts of ways in our culture. We see we, we like the light often. We don't want the dark. And I think that's not a balanced perspective, clearly. And we can really look at the, the, the beauty and benefits of both darkness and light. So first, the, the uh, qualities of darkness as stopping and being still, very much like the earth. So we, in a way, we've, we've come to the retreat and we've, we've begun to uh, stop. And this is not easy. You know, probably most of us have, could feel the momentum. It's like when you're moving and busy and you suddenly come to a stop, you kind of like something comes after you. And we can feel that today. How many could relate to feeling the momentum of the last days with you? Yeah, very much. And many of us came from busy and even hectic times. Sometimes there's tiredness, exhaustion, which is very natural and, and not a problem. But we, we've really stopped the input. You know, to a large extent, certainly at the level that we might have had in the last few weeks. We learn also how to have the mind be less active, more quiet. Well, again, a lot of the focus today is on stabilizing attention, developing what we might call concentration, samadhi in the original language. And concentration is not a great translation for samadhi. Uh, samadhi is actually has more the more the um, the sense of gathering, or placing near, or unification. And in English, concentration. I think this is in many uh, Western languages. Concentration may have a sense of this willful, even straining, focusing. I will concentrate. Mm. And that can go into our meditation, maybe even today, right? How many people felt you were trying and straining just to stay with things, right? How many can relate to that? 
And what we're looking for, and it takes some time to develop because we have a lot of cultural habits, you know, to really, <clears throat> I know that it took a long time for me to develop that, um, to learn that actually there can be a deep uh, samadhi that comes actually more from relaxation. And so one way to think about it is to, it's actually to use a, a model that was used, that's used in the tradition of letting our attention be more like a musical instrument in which the strings are neither too tight nor too loose. And we can ask ourselves with our attempt to come back to the breath or to whatever is the primary object, am I too tight or am I too loose? Am I straining too much? Then I could relax. Am I just sort of, oh, I won't strain, whatever. <laughs> it could be too loose. Right, so we want to we keep asking that question. <clears throat> so it's, a kind, it's, in, it's an interesting, almost uh, paradoxical combination. It's a kind of, we combine firmness with relaxation. I think in one of the groups we were um, uh, briefly discussing the relevance of that combination of firmness and relaxation for raising children. Okay. I, won't, I won't go further with that one, but, but it's interesting. Or it could be with many, many other areas. So we keep coming back. We have to have that firmness to keep coming back, but we have a more relaxed quality doing it. Just, okay, I just come back without, ah, uh, messed up again. <clears throat> Not a good meditator. <clears throat> okay. So we develop um, this increased uh, appreciation of stillness, of silence. This is from the Zen teacher John Tarrant. He says, the ancient basis of spiritual practice is always stillness and silence. We may sit under a tree cross-legged in a quiet room or by the fire. The important thing is that we turn towards inwardness Silence comes to us out of the dawn of the world from the earliest band gathered at the sandstone cliffs looking for the sun to rise. We are at the water hall at dawn. The beasts arrive and drink and leave, yet we remain. Thoughts, memories, sorrows, excitements, they rise and have their time and fall away. We seek deeper into the silence until it becomes its own desire and fulfillment. from the poet Rilke. All creation holds its breath, listening within me because to hear you, I keep silent. So to listen deeply, we have to have that quality of silence, both external and, and internal, to have to become more quiet inside. In the second sense of Darkness is that of being with the unknown or the mysterious. So it's being able to cultivate a sense of uh, openness. One of the great metaphors for spiritual practice is listening. And some of you know the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa is often portrayed with his hand cupped to his ear, listening to experience, listening to the world. Or Kuan Yin, 
the Bodhisattva or goddess of compassion is called she who hears the cries of the world. And listening, beautiful metaphor, just to be able to be here and say, let me just listen to my experience. So often we want to have this kind of experience or that kind of experience, you know, where we've done this retreat and this happened. And if I just make my cushion in the right angle, you know, and sit for this way or have the thought that I had last time, I will have the experience I want. Better to just to try open listening. Sometimes, because I, like all of us, have that tendency at times, sometimes I will start a sitting and just say, I don't know at all what's going to happen, but I want to be open. Just at the beginning, that can be helpful to have that quality of openness and listening. There's a way that we have to uh, let go of our scripts, our sense of what should happen. And of course, a lot of what happens in practice is we notice those scripts. We notice those views. We notice those uh, expectations. And we we can see them more clearly. There's a, there's a book uh, uh, written by um, Krishnamurti called Freedom from the Known, which is quite beautiful and talks about, can I just be, have that quality of openness where I even give up my sense of, I know this, I know that, here's my view. This is what he wrote. Uh, now we are going to investigate ourselves together, taking a journey together a journey of discovery into the most secret corners of our minds. And to take such a journey, we must travel light. We cannot be burdened with opinions, prejudices, and conclusions. All that old furniture we have collected for the last 2,000 years or so. (laughs) Forget all you know about yourself. Forget all you have ever thought about yourself. We are going to start as if we knew nothing. It rained last night heavily. And now the skies are beginning to clear. It is a new fresh day. Let us meet that fresh day as if it were the only day. Let us start on our journey together with all the remembrance of yesterday left behind and begin to understand ourselves for the first time. So that sense of freshness and even mystery. That can be wonderful to cultivate a sense of mystery. And that sense of unknowing can be a beautiful practice also in daily life. I was thinking of the example of uh, Gandhi. When, uh, when Gandhi uh, went back to India after being in South Africa for, what, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. And he um, said, I don't really know what to do now. And I don't even know, in a sense, my country. And he's, he He said, I want to travel and see what's there and listen. He said he wanted to keep for one year his ears open and his mouth shut. And he did that. And he he actually did something like that at very key moments in his experience when he was at a period when he didn't know. He would often just stay silent and be on retreat. 
Some of his most powerful actions came out of that not knowing and just waiting for the right response, for the right sense of things. And I know many of us here are in transitional times and it can be very wonderful just to take this time as a deepening, a listening. And one way to work with that in terms of if there actually are real questions that are there for you is to keep going deeper with the practice but maybe set, know that you'll set some time, maybe the last morning, maybe you write in a journal or something. You'll have insights during the retreat. If you keep following them, you won't go so deeply. But you can say, it's important to see my life in the perspective of more inner calm and peace. But let me do that at the end So I keep going deeper and then at a certain point I say, okay, now is the time to reflect. I recommend that because there's a temptation, isn't it? As the mind sometimes gets more quiet to follow, oh, hey, I should do that. Oh, let's think about that for the next hour. (laughs) And I'm recommending that you in a way honor both the uh, opportunity of the retreat and the importance of addressing real life issues or concerns from a place of greater calm. So if you see people doing some writing after breakfast on our last day, you'll know what they're doing. (laughs) There's also a way in which we can understand this sense of embracing the darkness as embracing difficulty and being with difficulty. And this goes against a lot of our conditioning, doesn't it? I was thinking of this, there's a cartoon, which is one of my favorites, which uh, expresses the view of let's not embrace difficulties in the context of meditation. It, It shows a young woman on a meditation cushion and she's saying, today I will live in the present moment. Unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. Is that familiar? (laughs) So one of the glories of practice, not an easy glory, is that we actually can be very skilled in being with difficulties. Again, this goes against a lot of our conditioning. It goes a a lot against a lot of the tendencies in the world where we don't want to look into what's difficult. We don't want to look into history. We don't want to look into challenges. We somehow want easy solutions. And so we may have experienced today uh, what we sometimes call the hindrances or the difficult energies where we may have felt sleepy, restless, confused, doubting, wanting something that's not present very strongly, not wanting something that is present very strongly. (laughs) How many experienced at least one of those during the day? And it's it's totally normal, uh, especially the first day. You know, so, you know, I don't know if we should put in our, you know, uh, promotional material. You know, I I haven't looked at our promotional material. It actually says what we, how we advertise this, but, you know, you should say, come, go through 
a lot of ups and downs, including exhaustion, tiredness, and restlessness, and possibly you will come to insight. <laughs> I don't know, what, what do we say? I don't know what we say, but probably something that sounds better than that, you know. But in actuality, as you know, uh, that we, we actually just stay with what's there, and sometimes what's there is challenging, and especially on the first day. Totally normal, not a problem. Basically, we stay with it. Some of it just shifts because, you know, maybe we get a good rest, we were really busy coming in here. But there are also ways that we can work skillfully with each of these. A lot of it is just being mindful that this is happening. Okay, I have, uh, I really am wanting something. Right, I'm wanting to be with my partner who is at home, or I'm wanting this or that, or I'm not wanting this. I'm, you know, I came here to have deep insight and bliss, and I, I think I'm in really, really good shape, but my back hurts. <laughs> You know, I've been doing yoga studiously for 10 years and my back hurts. What's going on? And so we can be with that. We can open up to what's challenging. First of all, we can know that it's happening. So we can work with sleepiness. We, if, we're, if we're sleepy or tired, we can first of all know, is it because I need more sleep? For some of us, that will be the case. And it can be really kind to oneself to take a nap. Maybe many of you did that today, if there's really a need, if there's really a need for that. For some of us, the tiredness is more from going inward and not having so much outward input. And, that, and that's something that we can work with in different ways. First of all, notice it. We can sometimes summon a little more energy by brisk walking. We can, have, we can develop the quality of interest and curiosity it's actually possible to be very mindful of sleepiness. It can be really fascinating. If you're really mindful of sleepiness, you can sometimes watch it come and go like a cloud. It's quite interesting. This is where it's not because we're exhausted and, t- and actually need a rest. We can watch our thoughts. We can name them. We can um, be, with, uh, be with the aversion to something and notice it and notice how it may lead to proliferation of thoughts. You know, if there's a lot of restlessness, we can sometimes try to do, do something like qigong, which calms the body, and so forth. There's a very uh, important teaching that I think is right at the heart of, of, our, of our tradition about the value of being able to open to what's difficult. And in in a way, it's an expression of the famous teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And this um, this is one of my favorite teachings, if not my favorite teaching, it's called the Teaching of the Two Arrows. And those of you who've gone to a solstice retreat in the past have heard me teach this, because it's necessary to teach every solstice. And it goes like this. It's really a fundamental, fundamental teaching. The Buddha was uh, talking to his practitioners and he said, everyone experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? As was often the case, he would ask a question and they would not answer. So as would often be the case, he would answer his own question. 
this happened in this case. And he said, everyone experiences some degree of unpleasant experiences. And we could think of unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant emotional experiences. Uh, sometimes there's um, injustice, lack of fairness, and so forth. And we all experience this, some, you know, some more than others. And he said that that is like being shot by an arrow. Everyone, practitioner or non-practitioner, experiences that. In that, practitioner and non-practitioner do not differ. Where do they differ? It's in what happens after the first arrow has been shot, when they've been shot by the first arrow. He says, a non-practitioner, because of the presence of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow in reaction as if that would help. And how does that manifest? It would manifest in when there's something unpleasant in the body, we'll react in the body, we'll tense, we'll um, steal ourselves in some way. We'll, we'll really strongly react to that tension as if that would help. Emotionally, we'll react, and that's probably much more clear how that works. Someone says something to me that I don't like, and I react right back by saying something I hope the other person won't like. Right? And we go back and forth like that, and we see this at the level of uh, nations, back and forth, shooting the second arrow back and forth. Most conflicts, most violent conflicts, are versions of shooting the second arrow. A lot of complexities as well, but they're in some ways back and forth, back and forth. What the practitioner learns to do is in the presence of the first arrow, not to shoot the second arrow. And that's, that's a challenging training. That means at times to be with what's physically unpleasant and just to be with it. When that's wise, when we're not uh, causing damage, when we're not, uh, when it doesn't become an ordeal, like as John was instructing this morning, it can be very valuable to actually be with what's physically unpleasant. We can learn a lot to be with that uh, back that feels a little tension or strain or be with the knee pain. We can learn to be with the emotional pain, with difficult emotions, with anger or fear or sadness. And we can learn to be with them and study them, really to have that curiosity to go into the difficulties. I've been interested in the last few weeks, and I've been teaching some on the theme of fear, you know, looking both at how fear manifests in individual experience and then being able to look outwardly to the world, to the public events, and see how fear manifests. And there's some, our practice permits us to do that, to really look into it. Let me just be with anxiety or fear when it's workable. You know, and um, several of us have often given some guidelines for this by talking about degrees of difficulty of a difficult phenomena or painful phenomena. And 
using the, the scale like the Olympic divers of zero to 10. When it's nine or 10, it's very hard to be mindful and present. A lot of where we actually study fear or anger, the difficult phenomena, are when it's in like the four to seven range. And sometimes when it's a nine or 10, we may need to make sure we can come back to balance. And mindfulness doesn't really work so well. That's an important quality, but we can really look into these phenomena. We can really study, have curiosity. Curiosity is such an important part of this practice, investigation, trying to see what's there. As we practice really in these ways with the darkness, we can at times see that being with the darkness is fertile, that it's generative, much like the earth. The darkness brings forth something beautiful. And we can see that in our practice. We can see that when we stay with, uh, when we stay with the difficulties, for example, we can have gifts that come out of being with the difficulties. We can have one of those experiences where we often say, Oh, that was so difficult and I learned so much. And I sure wouldn't want it to happen again. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. We often say, I learned so much from that, but then something like that happens in the present and no way. <laughs> right, do you know that? <laughs> so we have, to, we have to remember that possibility of learning from difficulties. But there's a way in which the darkness can be fertile. A poem from Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So the dark blooms and sings. There's a beautiful line in a um, letter that the poet Rilke wrote. Some of you know this in the, in the collection called Letters to a Young Poet, in which Rilke was corresponding with this young poet who I think was about 21. And Rilke was this uh, ancient poet of 29. (laughs) And he wrote the letters to a young poet. And the, the poet was wanting everything to be all worked out at age 21. And Rilke, from his wisdom, he said, have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. Isn't that beautiful? To live the question. Something's unresolved, and I think our practice is a beautiful way of training in that, to be able to be with the process and not be quite so needing of, oh, I want everything clear, or I want everything resolved, but to know that the uh, integrity of the process helps that clarity emerge. My father was blind the last 27 years of his life. 
There was a kind of outer darkness, but something was really blooming inside. You know, that darkness in his lack of vision was connected with increasing kindness, increasing compassion. And people would love to talk with him at that time, that the that actual lack of physical sight and the darkness was connected with something growing and something quite beautiful happening. We could see that. We could see that very easily. There was something very beautiful also about the way that he would relate to people, you know, and it wouldn't be based on what he was seeing. Isn't that interesting? You know, some, whatever the appearance would be, you know, tall, short, this kind of person, old, young, there was some other way of relating. It was quite, it was quite interesting to be with him in, the, in that context. So we can start to see that out of these aspects of darkness, out of the stopping, the silence, the being with the unknown, the being with the difficulty, something comes into being. You know, that it's, it's really a reason to be with our practice and to be patient, to really just be there and have this sense that we're, we're birthing something. Basho, from you know, the, the great Japanese haiku writer. In the utter darkness of a moonless night, a powerful wind embraces the ancient cedar trees. Something beautiful comes out of that darkness. Roka, one moment your life is a stone in you and the next a star. And we can look to the lives of um, a lot of people. We can see how something deeply uh, generative came out of very difficult times. Think of the life of Nelson Mandela, right? What, 27 years in prison, I think, right? And something beautiful got generated there, quite something. Or we can look to, um, some of you know, the life of Carl Jung, the psychologist, who went through a four-year period of really not knowing of darkness, of confusion, And out of that came his entire understanding of the depths of the psyche. Came out of a very difficult time. You could read read those accounts. I found it really helpful. I love to read accounts of people who went through difficulties and something came out of it. It's quite something. So we can see how that happens, how how the difficulties bring bring gifts. We see Very, you know, and we find that in many ancient spiritual traditions, the shaman who goes into the underworld and is actually dismembered and comes back to wholeness at a certain point later. Or in a Christian tradition, the dark night of the soul, the period of difficulty that when one stays with it, something beautiful comes out of that. And there are also ways in which we deliberately cultivate light. We cultivate the qualities of 
clarity of the kind heart in our basic practice. As our concentration gets deeper, it can sometimes manifest as light in the mind. And in many traditions, the depths of the the depth of our being are understood as connected with light. We use the word enlightenment at times. We can find passages in the ancient texts about the mind and heart being radiant, connected with love, connected with kindness. from uh, Achan Man, one of the uh, great teachers that's connected with our, our tradition and lineage here, uh, a Thai monk, in the, especially in the first half of the 20th century. He said, this mind and heart are originally radiant and clear, but because passing corruptions and defilements come and obscure it, it doesn't show its radiance. And there's so many uh, texts which bring that out. One of, one of my favorite, which I like to work with in meditation, is from the Tibetan tradition. And it's uh, really referring to the qualities of the uh, awake being. And it goes like this, and I, I sometimes like to recite this as I'm practicing. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. That's us. <laughs> That's us when, we've, when, when, when we shine, right? And the teachings are always that that shining is our nature. And sometimes it's there without doing anything and sometimes we have to practice. Sometimes we have to come to a retreat to engage in that process. So I've um, appreciated a lot the, some of the paradoxes. Of this relationship of light and darkness, you know, that, that in a way we go into darkness this time of year, into the not knowing. We go into darkness in order to see better. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> that we, uh, we stop in order to learn how to better move later. We come to knowing more clearly by being willing to be with the unknown. If we're willing to open to darkness as difficulty, we come to greater ease. That we come to this greater ease because we're willing to be with the difficult. Don't think about this too logically. (laughs) So we have a sense that uh, in a way the light and dark aren't separated. That there's uh, light inside the dark And there can be dark inside the light, too. I think I'll finish with uh, two poems. Let's see where they are. 
The first is by Jane Hirschfield, who lives nearby. This is also about light and dark. Three times my life has opened. Once into darkness and rain. Once into what the body carries at all times within it and starts to remember each time it enters the act of love. Once to the fire that holds all. These three were not different. You will recognize what I am saying or you will not. But outside my window all day, a maple has stepped from her leaves like a woman in love with, a win- with winter, dropping the colored silks. Nor are we different in what we know. There is a door, it opens. Then it is closed. But a slip of light stays like a scrap of unreadable paper left on the floor or the one red leaf the snow releases in March. And then just to close with uh, one of my favorite poems from uh, Pablo Neruda. I didn't organize it. Sometimes I have it read in Spanish also. But I'm not fluent enough. Um, If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. That's our practice. (laughs) I'll read it again. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So if it's helpful, you can work with these themes uh, of the darkness as stopping and stillness, the darkness as going into the mystery, darkness as being with the difficulty, darkness as fertile, as as evoking light. Maybe one of those resonates with you and and they may might be a guide for a sitting to say, let me let me be with the mystery. Or There's difficulty now, let me be with this. So thank you kindly for your attention. And we'll have uh, about a half hour of walking and then uh, come back for the sitting, the very, very brief sitting. (laughs) Very, 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 very brief sitting and some chanting, which will be also on the brief side. So, worth waiting for. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.